Hey, it's Alana, and here's another episode of Black and Yellow solo cast. Hello, hello, Black and Yellow Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Black and Yellow Podcast. Happy Pride as well. Uh, I hope it's starting to feel something like summer wherever you are listening in from. Quite frankly, it already feels like full-blown summer here in Los Angeles, California. Um, At the beginning of the week, however, it was sort of overcast and rainy and kind of chilly, and I was hoping for a couple more of those days because they feel like such a novelty, but alas. Mother Nature had other plans, so we are uh, in full-blown what feels like summer mode here in SoCal. If you are a new listener to the show, welcome. It's great to be in your eardrums. Please subscribe so that we can keep on connecting. And if you're a return listener, welcome back. Today's episode is part two of last week's episode of our amazing conversation with Fiona Lowenstein and Shamir Smith about how living with long COVID is and how we can be empathetic, supportive citizens to those learning to navigate this very new and very challenging reality that is living with long haul COVID. If you missed last week's episodes, uh, do yourself a favor, push pause on this episode, listen to last week's to get all caught up on who Fiona and Shamir are, the work that they do, and what their experiences living with long COVID have been like thus far. Today's episode will be rounding out that conversation with practical, actionable steps for how you, me, we, uh, those of us who are not living with long COVID, but want to show up for those people who are in meaningful and compassionate and validating ways. Uh, This is the episode for you. Remember how at the beginning of the pandemic, we were bombarded with messages reminding us that we are, quote, all in this together. Remember that? You like couldn't get away from them wherever you went. You were sort of Uh, hit with it full-blown. Well, that this, aka COVID-19, is not totally over yet. Yes, vaccines have been rolled out and about 60% of American adults have received at least one dose of the vaccine, but we are still learning about new COVID-19 effects, um, what long-term effects it has, and quite frankly, for those who got it, survived it, and are living with its long-term effects, uh, they're learning new, different Uh, realities of living with long COVID every day, new symptoms might crop up or symptoms that may have been dormant for a while might re-arise. And uh, they're learning to navigate this new normal and we should show up and uh, support them through it. So that this is not quite over yet. Let's, uh, for them, let's stand united with our long haulers and do all we can to learn about as much as what they're going through as possible. So that is part two of today's episode. But first, before we get to our part two, let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we? For any of our new listeners, this is our small business segment aimed at diversifying your dollars. Where you spend money makes a difference. And this section, I like to highlight one Black-owned business and one Asian-owned business for you to support. Because it is pride, I am uh, making both of these businesses also LGBTQIA plus owned businesses. So it's a good double whammy. You can support the LGBTQIA. TQIA community, as well as supporting a Asian own an Asian business owner or a Black business owner. So first up, I am going to go with Loyalty Bookstore this week. Loyalty Bookstore is my 
black bookstore that I am featuring this week. It is an indie bookstore in DC and Maryland, two locations, and it specializes in diversifying books. So it's owned by Hannah Oliver, who's a black queer woman, and the store works to diversify the publishing industry so that it can be better uh, equipped to serve queer communities of color. So while the storefront is still closed, their online store is open, taking orders and kicking. I just ordered my copy of Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid from Loyalty Bookstore and am basically counting down the days until it gets into my hands. Uh, what can I say? I love a summer beach read. And I love shopping with Loyalty Bookstore. They made it super easy, super fun and super engaging. Uh, so check them out for any of your book buying needs. And for my next business, I chose Pause on social media. They are at pause.newyork. They are my Asian-owned business. And Pause are fashion shirts that are ethically sourced and sustainably made. So Pause is a New York-based fashion brand, and it is co-founded by partners Ho Hyun and Cezanne Kalakoku, I hope I pronounced that right, who spent a decade learning about the environmental impact of the fashion industry and created Pause to prove that you can have ethical and sustainable clothing that does not sacrifice on design and style. The design aesthetic uh, combines classic silhouettes with modern architectural influences to create a seasonless line that can be worn by, quote, literally anybody. Who doesn't love that? Paz's collection is basically known for its genderless shirts that are made from wool, cotton, and faux leather. So they can go from day to night and are totally chic and super cool. So check them out at pausenewyork.com. I will drop links to both of these businesses in the show notes. And without further ado, let's get back to part two of my conversation with Fiona Lowenstein and Shamir Smith, Love and the Long Haul. Enjoy. Um, ladies, I'm going to pause this. I want to talk about family and friends for a second. How have your family and friends helped and supported you or not helped or supported you during this time? I feel like you should you should answer that first. You have yeah. such a good a yeah. good story. Um so you know, it is it has been a precarious situation with my family and friends. Um one where we're all learning. Um my mom this past weekend told me something that resonated with me very, very much. And I thought about it and I thought about how I handle life in general. Um, my mom, I said, you know, I said, I really, really wanted you all as my family to, to come to Baltimore because, you know, we live, um, I'm, I'm from the uh, D.C. and um, we migrated over to a small town outside of D.C., but I'm still a D.C. Baltimore girl. Yeah, but, um, DMV. Yeah, DMV. That's right. <laughs> and so um, I, t I told my mom I was crying to her because um, I'm still experiencing a lot of symptoms. Right. And and on some days life gets hard and I don't want the fact that I'm an advocate to ever um, to ever downplay that part of it. My life has been majorly affected by this. I will never be the same again. So sometimes I cry about that. And so as I was crying to her, I said, mom, I said, I really wish you could have um, could have come my mother, my birth mother, um, come to see me in Baltimore. And she said, you know what, Shamir, she said, you got to remember, she said, for a long time, you know, you just told us that you weren't feeling well. You didn't tell us everything. 
And I thought about that and I said, no, I did not. And the truth is nobody really could have come to visit anyway because it wasn't safe to travel like that, you know? Um, But Alana, I wrote a will. I I rewrote a will because I had one and I had to give it to my best friend and my godmother. And so I thought I was going to die. It was hard for me to tell my family. I've always been like the risk taker, kind of black sheep, do anything. You know, I just take chances that I, me, was I was sick. And so to them, I didn't outwardly convey it until probably about May because I knew that something was so wrong that if I did die in this room, I wanted them to have an accurate picture of what was going on. But as far as where I live, who I live with, I live with my godmother, who I've I've met over 17 years ago. She started off as being um, the pastor of the church I I, I used to attend, um, that I, you know, that I still, um, I'm not a member anymore, but I still very much count that as a a part of my spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Um, She, from the very beginning, loved on me so hard. From this, I live in the basement. I could feel her love and her prayers and her concern and her care for me upstairs. She was walking the, you know, walking the floor as we sat mm-hmm. in the in the black church, walking the floor, hoping and praying that I would be okay. And then I, I like Fiona, I could not eat for, um, I lost about 20 pounds. I couldn't eat for like three weeks, three, four weeks, right? And after a couple of days of noticing that I wasn't coming upstairs to get anything, because I was afraid I didn't want to infect anybody else if, you know, if this was true. Um, she started, she she opened up the basement door. She calls me Shug. That's my nickname. That's her nickname. She said, Shug, you want anything to eat or drink? And I said, no. I said, because I, I couldn't even get out of my bed. I couldn't walk up the steps. I had fainted during this whole ordeal. And she said, okay. She said, I'm going to make you a little bit of oatmeal. And she said, I'm going to set it up here and you get it when you feel like getting it. And that little bit of oatmeal turned into egg, sausage, grits. It turned into conversations at the, at the top of the basement door. It turned into prayers and encouragement up the stairs. She took such good care of me. It's okay. Take a minute. You got me over here crying. Yeah. She took good, She took really good care. Yeah. And not only her, but because remember, I was, look, I had gotten dumped. Now, I know the reason I got dumped is not because I got sick. It was problems way before. But it's nothing more devastating when you get dumped in the middle of being sick, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But my best friend, I had a good, everybody needs a good best friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't care who you are. My best friend, Sequoia Thompson. Shout out. Day shout out from day (laughs) one, that woman had my back. What do you need? I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to drop it off at your door. I'm going to make sure. And and other friends, a community of people. So even though people couldn't necessarily travel and because I, I was trying to protect people up until a certain point, when my family knew, when my, you know, my aunties, my mother and everybody, when they knew they started to come. Oh, well, let's do this. Here's some money. Here's this. Here's that. So thankfully, I've had a wonderful support system. Um, I, You know, I had to end a, a familial relationship with somebody who was close to me because 
um, that was a toxic relationship. So I had to set boundaries and finally cut the cord on that relationship. But overall, I've had a healthy, healthy community of people to love me. And not just them. I started to build relationships with people in body politic. I mean, like, um, I'm a board member of body politic now. Like, a friend of mine came over outside last week. Outside, because I only do outside, right? <laughs> I feel that. I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. He said, he said to me, he said something that really resonated in my heart and it just it set on my heart and it's been there since then he said you know what Shamir he said the reason why people are attracted to you he said because even through illness and challenges and setbacks you still are who you are giving people loving people attract mm-hmm. giving and loving people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was only able to meet people like Fiona and other people because even in illness I, I, I still was able to connect so the village that I'm building on top of the good friends and family is nothing more than just a reflection of the life I try to lead aside from being ill, because there is more to me than just being ill. So I've had some incredible, incredible family and support systems and, and my job too. my job raised money for me, like a lot of money. I was like, I lived off that money for like three months. And I Wonderful. was like, because it's, it's, it's a testament to who we try to be. I think Fiona's work is in the fact that she was able to garner so many people and galvanize. Let's use that word, galvanize. When we think about movements, Fiona started a movement because she did not just say, all right, this is my experience. I'm going to keep it to myself. She went out and was like, I got to let y'all know. And that, that means a lot. That's support within itself, you know? Fiona, we're over here gassing you. I gotta know. <laughs> right. <laughs> gas, gas. We're no. over here gassing you. Listen, they might not be able to find listen, they might not be able to find gas at the gas station. Fiona got it. I know I'm laughing and crying. Right. <laughs> Shout out to Sequoia. Shout out yeah. to Sabrina, who's the person yeah. who got me sick, who's, yeah. you know, my bestie, who yes. who was uh, both of them. I feel like, you know, yeah. it's like the four of us have to go on a double date at some point. Right. But, um, oh, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. But yeah, having those, that's, that's the thing, right? You only need one person. Like you need one person who truly gets it. And if you have that one person, like, Everyone else can be an asshole, but you have mm-hmm. that person that you can text and be like, oh my God, everyone's being an asshole right now. Um, yeah. And that's what Sabrina was for me. That's what I was for her. And, you know, I think then that community just expanded because also we had gone to college together. So we knew some of the same people. And I still, I had a conversation with her the other day. She has, it's, it's, listen, this is not unusual. She had a, initially her symptoms were maybe a bit less severe than mine, right? Because I had severe shortness of breath. And she did not. Um, I got that care. She did not. Um, I'm now doing better than she is. Um, mm-hmm. And and we see this a lot because the people who didn't get care early on. I mean, something like having to struggle to for oxygen, hypoxia. That that puts a huge strain on all these other systems of your body. So there are people, you know, getting diagnosed with issues now. If they had maybe just gotten supplemental oxygen early on, or got or been seen by doctors, right? Things could be better. Mm-hmm. So. 
So, but I had that conversation with her the other day where we were talking about, you know, re-entering society to some extent, right? What are we going to, and I just, we said to each other again, I have your back. Just know I, I've got your back. Like someone says something, if, if someone doesn't understand, like you are not alone, like I'm going to be there. Like I'm, you know, going to be the mama bear basically like, uh, uh-uh. like we're yeah. leaving this situation. Um, and I think that was really helpful. And then, you know, my partner got COVID too, and we live together. Um, and that was incredibly difficult because they, when I first started showing symptoms, we separated to the extent that we can in like a really small New York city apartment. You know, we yeah. still had to use the same bathroom and kitchen, but I was kind of locked in our bedroom. And then, but then they had to take me to the hospital because who else was gonna take me? And when we got to the hospital, we were actually in the emergency room and my partner took their temperature and they had a fever. And so it was like, suddenly, oh, guess you have COVID too. But the worst part was that after that night in the ER and we were in the same room together and they were kind of treating us together because I had the severe shortness of breath and my partner did not, I got tested for COVID, I got hospitalized, my partner got sent home alone. So that was the worst moment for me. I mean, I had a full on panic attack. I was so scared of being hospitalized. I've never been hospitalized before. I was so scared of being alone. I knew no one could visit me. Um, and I was just terrified that my partner was going to, who was going to take care of them. I mean, they had to go back to our apartment alone. And what if they developed the severe shortness of breath, who was going to, you know, put them in a car and take them to the hospital and all of that stuff. So, you know, that was really, really stressful. And thank goodness their case never became as severe as mine. Um, but it's funny because we actually have been talking recently about how, you know, that's still the sickest they've ever been. And we've, they didn't even really get that much care or attention for how they felt because it was all about me because I was so, that much sicker. Right. And so I think that was, you know, they were my caregiver for months. They were making all of my meals. They were, you know, standing outside the shower to make sure that I didn't fall when I was showering. Right. Or helping me out of the shower. Sometimes if I, if I couldn't, they were telling me to take breaks, you know, um, setting me up on the couch with pillows and whatnot, you know, when I needed it. Um, and, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. It's, we were both 26 and I don't think, you know, either of us expected to have to deal with something like this, this at this point in our lives. And it was hard for them to caregive. They had needs of their own that weren't being met. Um, and I think there's a lot of shame. You know, we've talked about this. I actually wrote a piece on on caregiving and long COVID and talked to a few different kind of caregiving patient couples. Um, but I think there's also a lot of shame at feeling like exhausted by caregiving because you're like, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? Sure. Um, but they were really there for me. And, and I do not know how I would have made it through this if I had lived alone. I mean, I, I, I truly don't. And I similarly don't know how I would have made it through this without Sabrina. And then like Shamir, my circles started to grow so much when I started to meet other long COVID patients and other people with related chronic illnesses and disabilities. So I have friends, I'm now friends with a lot of people with ME-CFS, which is an illness I did not, I barely knew what it was. And I definitely did not understand it before the pandemic. And, um, and, and people, people like Shamir also, you know, I, I'm 27 and, you know, I, I am still young and I, I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time. And I think like, you know, <laughs> to be honest, um, All right. <laughs> and, um, just to have people who are just a little bit older than me, you know, just five or 10 years older than me, women 
who are there on an emotional level and also to provide that kind of support for, you know, things like professional things going on the news or, you know, how to deal with different leadership issues and that sort of thing has just been so nice. I really feel like I mean, I think I've made more friends this year, honestly, than I yes. like ever have before, <laughs> which is so bizarre, but it, it's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I totally believe it. Yeah, yeah. but it's really pulling on my introvert, my extrovert, introvert personality. It's, mm-hmm. it's stretching me a bit. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, just having those people that you can lean on in the tough emotional moments and know that they fully understand and vice versa. And I, I really feel that I said to Shamir, I think it was yesterday, like we're bonded for life after this. Like, I really feel like we are all, this community is so close. Like I can't wait to meet everyone in person someday. And, and it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. There were friends who kind of were really there for me at the beginning, but then when I wasn't getting better, they kind of tapped out because I don't think that we teach people what to do in a situation where someone is sick and not getting better, you know, and, and I don't blame all of them because I think also for a lot of them, everyone was dealing with a lot with the, with the pandemic. Um, And then there were certain people who completely ignored what I was going through and were making really poor pandemic decisions. And those are people that I have kind of cut out of my life. But for the most part, my friends were, were supportive and understanding. And I think like Shamir, I kind of built up this community of people that, that really understood based on their own experiences. And it was the friends who had chronic illnesses or who had dealt with serious health crises or had that in their family who I leaned on the most during this time, you know, friends with fibromyalgia or PCOS or, you know, friends who um, had care, you know, given care to loved ones who were ill. Those are the people who really understood what I was going through. And I felt like we are bond deepened because actually I had not understood, you know, a lot about their experience prior to getting sick myself. Well, actually, let's talk about that because you had an article in Teen Vogue, Fiona, that was about, um, friends either falling to the wayside or friends sort of not being there completely for those who are going through COVID. And this article is actually one of the things that inspired me to have this conversation with you and other people. That article is called Some COVID-19 Patients Say They're Losing Friends As They Recover. And I was really moved by it. Can you talk to us about why this is happening and how we can be compassionate and empathetic friends to loved ones going through COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the big responses that I got to that article, certainly lots of COVID patients saying, yes, this is happening to me. But I also got so many other people with other chronic illnesses and disabilities saying, thank you for writing about this because this is my experience and this has been my experience for, you know, the past few years or the past decade and no one really talks about it. And so I think it's a combination of things. There are some things that are unique to COVID, which is that, you know, I think, again, everyone experienced a trauma on some level at the beginning of the pandemic, just in terms of, you know, realizing what was going on. People got laid off. People, you know, couldn't couldn't pay their rent, right? People lost loved ones. Um, and so I think that made it even harder to connect um, and, and ask for support from friends because so many people were tapped out already. They They were like, I can't, I can't get any bad news. I can't deal with any more negative news, right? So I don't want to talk about the pandemic. And like, that was the thing that came up a lot was once I was finally well enough to go on, you know, a Zoom hangout, which really didn't happen until like probably late April or May. um, And I got sick in early March. What, What did I have to talk about, right? Like I wasn't baking bread. I wasn't doing knitting projects. I wasn't, you know, going and staying at some relative's house in the country somewhere because it's nicer, like, 
the only thing that I had to talk about was my own symptoms, the pandemic, because it felt so closely related to my personal life. And it was very hard to sit there and like hear people talking about these other things that I just couldn't relate to at all. And I think also there was a lack of understanding that like, no, I haven't, you know, gone to a socially distanced hangout in the park because my energy levels were such that I could not trust myself to actually do that. You know, like if I went to the park, I I didn't know that I'd be okay. Um, And, you know, I even remember like, I, I wrote the article before this happened, but last spring and summer when, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really sparked a lot of protests. And, you know, I live in New York City, so there was a lot going on. And it was a huge, huge activist moment for so many of us. Um, But it opened my eyes as well to the ways that certain types of activism can can be non-inclusive of people with disabilities and chronic illness. Um, Because it was the first time in my life that I wasn't able to just run out and hit the streets with all my friends, right? And that was also very hard to explain because by that point I was like, doing a lot better but hell no i did not trust my body to you know walk many many miles or go through a potentially you know physically traumatic experience like i didn't think that i could handle it um and so i know there were also a lot of other long COVID patients who were like i feel so left out of this movie i don't know how to help i don't know how to support um and and in that article just talking to people it was a really common experience um people were saying you know There's also the contagiousness aspect where you don't know how long you're infectious. So you're isolated to your room. So you're physically isolated for a long time. And, and just none of us could participate in those pandemic pastimes of, you know, baking bread or going outdoors for a walk together, all of that stuff. It was just, you know, we didn't have the energy for it. Half the time I couldn't even get on the phone with someone because I was still short of breath. So, so I think, you know, once again, it was just seeing ourselves erased from that quarantine narrative. Yeah. was really tough and and seeing friends erase you a little bit too yeah you know um i wanted to say something about what i, I read something recently um in an article i can't remember what it was where it talked about um and i think you know the medical community plays into this too a little bit of how we process and how we understand illnesses that are long term or they linger um the, the article talked about doctors and how doctors want somebody they can fix Right? Yeah. And yeah. when they cannot fix you, then they kind of they they tell scooch on, go go on, you know, because they can't do anything about that. And so like Fiona said, how we teach people how to understand and and hold space and compassion for people with chronic illnesses have to change. I think in the medical community, if we started to really acknowledge and empathize with with people like us, then it would be easier. It might be easier to have conversations with the general public about how to handle that. Um, I too, you know, started off, I mean, I, I was in a, a DMV group, um, you know, a social group, and we would hang out and go to the club all the time. And um, I don't even talk to about 80% of those people anymore because my life is different. I can't go out. I can't hang out. I don't really want to go out. Um, I do suffer with a bit of PTSD. Um, and anxiety now, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I, it's hard for me to be sometimes in spaces away from my home for a long time. So yeah, it, it, it's a whole myriad of, of watching the evolution of relationships and um, seeing how, how they're, how they're going. Like, like the, remember the um, Instagram challenge, how mm-hmm. it started versus how yeah. it's going. Yeah. I mean, I've had to snip, 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 you know, yeah. and, but you yeah. know what? 
sometimes the truth is, which what I found about that in the grand scheme of life, this is a cliche, is that that probably needed to happen anyway. There you go. You know, totally. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, I know that we've gassed Fiona. <laughs> she maybe gonna gas you too oh, because yes. literal history, capital yes. L literal history, yeah. on April twenty eighth of yeah. this year as the first Black woman mm -hmm. to testify before Congress about the physical, social, and financial effects of long COVID and uh -huh. Black people in urban communities. Full stop. All snaps to that. Oh my that god, is incredible! <laughs> Thank you so much. Please talk to us about what that experience was like and how it has informed your work. You know, um, that was an incredible experience. Um, it was a it was an, a long hearing. Um, it was about six hours with prep time, um, and I sat through most of it. Um, I did as much as my body could allow um, sitting up for that long period of time. But it was an incredible moment for me. Um, I still am like reeling from it and like trying to understand how in the hell did I get to talk to Congress? <laughs> you know, um, you know, when I was first approached about it, I didn't take it seriously because I was like, well, if they if they call on me, they will. If they don't, I don't care. You know, I've kind of sure. become very bold and brazen since becoming ill because I've had to fight so hard and so much for um, to be treated fairly um, and to be listened to. So I kind of have this attitude like I don't care. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. Not I don't care, but just more so like. It is what it is. I'm going to break down some doors. And if I don't, I'll find a window. If I don't, I'll find a cellar door or whatever. That's how I live my life now, right? Mm -hmm. So what I knew early on is that there was a lot of whispers about the fact that this was going to be the most popular hearing in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I did not quite know why. I thought I was like, okay, well, it's, it's because um, the, the grassroots support groups and 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 the, it's, it's become a movement since probably may or june you know people were coining um this uh as long COVID, and it has just grown massively right mm -hmm. different pockets of the world people are trying their best to tackle this in one way or the other but what i found out was is that a lot of congress women and men are suffering too and so they care more because they're watching their own lives be affected by this. And not, you know, some of them admitted that they were sick with long COVID and are still suffering. Some of them admitted that their children are and that their uh, their employees are and that their best friends are. So this congressional hearing was very personal for them because they know people who are affected. It was very interesting to watch the dichotomy of that because I was like, these people have the power and the privilege to change, to help change the narrative mm -hmm. of how the world, how the country and the world looks at long COVID. And they care more now because they cannot ignore it because it's happening to them. Mm -hmm. And so it was just very interesting to watch the, and hear the emotion from, from these people who I've watched um, all my life. Right. Um, but I approach the hearing like I'm now approaching my life. Mm. I approached it with the attitude is hate it or love it. It's me. <laughs> and I did not want to um, 
pretty up my testimony. I didn't mm-hmm. want to water it down. Mm-hmm. I, I thought about all the different things I could say to make it sound like these beautiful poetic lines of symptoms and woe is me and this mm-hmm. is my problem. But I thought about how I live my life. And I, I since June, I have taken, taken a hard stand on what is affecting me and other people I know that look like me. And I thought to myself, if I don't keep it 100, then I may as well waste these five minutes. And so when I, when I was given those five minutes, I didn't waste time. I was very clear about who I am and my position. I could tell you, yes, I was a teacher. Yes, mm-hmm. I, yes I lost my vision. No, I'm gonna tell you who I am right now. I'm poor, I'm disabled, I'm black, and I'm a woman. All the different ways that we marginalize people every single day in this country. I need you to know right off the break, within the first 45 seconds to a minute, that this is who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't let this makeup fool you. Don't let these pearls and this dress fool you. I am poor. I'm poor. I'm not working poor. Sure. Right? I mm-hmm. am poor. I am what you mm-hmm. call low income now. And I needed them to see that. And I just sure. didn't need to them to see me. I needed them to hear about other people that I talk to every day that are struggling in the same way. Well, I want to skip down in the interest of time. I want to mm-hmm. skip down to our call to action because I want you ladies to take the floor and give us marching orders. The us that I'm referring to are people who did who are not living with long COVID, but want to be the most sensitive, caring, supportive friends, cousins, daughters, citizens to people who are living with long COVID. So how can those of us not living with long COVID be the most supportive to those living with long COVID? I'm going to get off this mic and I will hand the floor over to you. ladies. <laughs> well, I think the first step, the first step in my opinion often is awareness, right? Like education. So, you know, read stories about people with long COVID, read the stories written by people with long COVID, but also educate yourself about the history of disability justice, because this is not right. Shamir mentioned the disability benefit system is not working for most long COVID patients, right? But listen, it really hasn't worked very well for anyone. So, um, <laughs> right. There, there's, really? there's a, a long history. The and the devil. Yes. History. Yeah. History. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. So there's, there's a lot of precedent for this, right? We're yes. not the first patient population to feel ignored or gaslit by, by medicine. We're not the first patient population to take matters into our own hands or to advocate for patient-led research or patient-led, you know, movements. Um, so I think, you know, it's about, it's about understanding that broader context um, and that this fight is really very intersectional. Um, and with that, I'll also say, you know, you do have to read between the lines a little bit in terms of the media narrative, because I do feel that the media is still treating long COVID as a footnote or a curious mm-hmm. human interest mm-hmm. story rather than, you know, yeah. I think it should be mentioned in every article about the pandemic, every article Definitely. about the future of the pandemic. Similarly, the media also highlights certain voices, right? Mm-hmm. So for a very long time, no one could really get interviewed or, or tell their story unless they had tested yep. positive. Yep. And who's most likely to test positive? Those people who were like me, who went to the ER, who had white privilege, who were taken seriously. I mean, at the same time that I was being treated in the ER and shortly afterward, there were black women in my city who died because they tried to access care and they were told it was just anxiety, that their shortness of breath was just anxiety. I was not told that, right? So, So questioning, okay, well, who are the voices that I'm hearing? I've seen people say, 
long COVID is a thing that only affects upper middle class white women. It's like, no, those are the voices that the media chooses to highlight. Those are the people who have more time to access all of these different doctors to navigate these healthcare systems. Not that anyone really has the time to do this, but, <laughs> um, and, you know, get that diagnosis. So I think that's a part of it too. Um, beyond that, you know, our advocacy goals, our clinician education, and, and, you know, as, as Shamir mentioned, we've, we've, the CDC is coming out with some clinician guidance soon that, that we provided um, a feedback on. Um, and we, we meet regularly with a lot of different health agencies. So I think definitely for any clinicians listening, we need clinicians to also educate one another because too much of that burden is falling on patients right now to kind of bring in the research or bring in the articles or, you know, have a, a bunch of email exchanges with your doctor. Um, <laughs> but, but the workplace issues are huge. And so I think, you know, being ready to advocate on behalf of a coworker, or if you're a manager, being aware that COVID does not, is not a two to four week recovery time that, that someone might feel better and then feel worse, right? Understanding that, you know, our workplace culture is not really set up to deal with something like this and it's going to take creative solutions and people stepping in to help one another out. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I think it's some of the stuff that I said early on, just, just understanding that everyone's journey with this is different. Um, that as a patient, it's very likely that you have been sent every article on, you know, long COVID or the vaccine curing long COVID or all of these things, you know, and, and I think for a lot of us also, we get sent all of the most optimistic articles. And so you end up feeling almost like a negative Nancy where you're like, okay, yes, that's true in some situations, but that's not my experience. So just being really gentle with those people in your life who are going through this and understanding that they're the expert of their own lived experience. Right. Um, and, and I think similarly, um, just, just being, you know, aware that recovery is not a light switch, right. That this is a, this is similar to the end of the pandemic. You know, we've all been through a lot and there are long-term mental health implications, financial implications, as well as long-term symptoms. In my situation, I've made an almost full recovery, but I still have lingering issues. And also it's been very up and down the past few months. I mean, I had many, many months where I felt mostly fine with the exception of my menstrual periods when I felt like I had long COVID all over again and I was back in bed. Yeah. Then those yeah. got a little bit better. I'm still having numbness in my hands. You know, I... I always feel a little stressed out when people are like, so have you recovered? So are you better yet? So are you on the other side? I think that's just a question to, to avoid in general. Um, and to understand that, you know, even if you do manage to get back to your baseline health, you know, prior to COVID, which is unlikely for a lot of us, you're not going to be the same person. You're, you're transformed by this to some degree. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's a lot of what we're focused on right now is the clinician education, the broader awareness, um, and just sort of that that compassion and inclusion of this population in pandemic policy decisions. And when I say pandemic policy decisions, obviously I'm, you know, Biden, if you're listening, we've been trying to get some <laughs> stuff done for a while now. Yes. You can yeah, find my email sure online. Um, <laughs> we still have yes. the show. Yes. Exactly. But it's also, unfortunately, we live in a ridiculous country where the government, you know, leaves a lot of these decisions up to us, right? Where reopening sometimes happens sooner than it should. And so pandemic policy decisions, it now includes individual choices as well. And so I think just keeping long COVID in your mind when you're deciding what's safe and what's not, and when you're deciding, you know, how to approach friends about what they want to do and that sort of thing, and just really holding space for those folks who have been especially traumatized by the pandemic, either through losing a loved one or having long COVID, um, just to understand that some of that, you know, extra caution 
like that's something we should really hold space for right now. We shouldn't be kind of ripping people's masks off and forcing them back, you know, out yeah. if, if they don't want to be. Absolutely. Um, I agree with all of those things. I think um, what I'm struggling with, can you hear me? Yeah, go for oh, it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What I'm struggling with now is it's such a it's such a weird place to be in. Um, like Fiona, I'm now getting a lot of text messages and, and messages from people who are saying stuff like, I am so glad you're better. Keep fighting for us. And I am also at this moment, a year later, experiencing moments of my own personal trauma, flashbacks. Mm things, uh, moments that of terror that can set me back um, for days and hours. And I'm not better. I'm just managing. I'm thankful for being able to see again. I'm thankful that I'm able to sit up in a chair for two hours, three hours, five hours at the hearing. I'm thankful that I'm able to use my voice and the opportunities that I've been given to speak, but I'm not better. Um, I'm working. I'm also concerned too because I'm working on a piece now, um, questioning why Black media hasn't attacked this. If you really That's do some investigations, there is no major mm. or small Black media publication or corporation mm. that is talking about long COVID. It's not in Shade Room. It's not on <laughs> other blogs. It's not. It's not in Essence, Ebony. Mm -hmm. It's not in any of the places where Black women can get their information. And mm. that's sad. Um, mm. We have to talk about this because it's not just Aunt Susie going to the hospital, being on the ventilator and her getting off of it. Praise the Lord, she's okay. Mm -hmm. Aunt Susie could be dealing with memory loss. She could be uh, now living with a speech impediment. She could now not be able to write or she may now end up being in a wheelchair. And if we are not talking about that in our communities, then we are doing a disservice to ourselves. So I'm questioning and investigating why. I think I do know why. Part of it is because long COVID, as I mentioned in my testimony, is just another thing stacked on lots of other things. Yes. It's, 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 it's discrimination, it's racism, it's uh, uh, healthcare inadequacy and, and care, um, you know, uh, 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 it's misdiagnosis. It's all of those things wrapped up. And you know what? We can't stand another thing. Mm -hmm. It's like a backpack that's too mm -hmm. full, it's too heavy. But yep. the truth is, if we don't start talking about it in our homes, in our communities, in our families, then we're going to be looking at an Aunt Susie or a young Paul or whoever, and we're going to wonder why they've been sick for years and we don't know, we, we haven't addressed it. And so that's why I'm working so hard. And as we mentioned, post-COVID care clinics are doing the very best that they can but they're not the only options. You know, I am in right now um, creating a plan of a hub um, at, a, at, a, at my church, you know, this, the space where my godmother owns the building to create a support hub for black and brown people to come um, to, to first of all, be believed, right? Mm -hmm. To be believed, but also to be surrounded by mental health resources, medical care resources, doctors that can come and speak to symptoms, um, other long COVID patient advocates who can speak to their experiences, as well as non-long COVID um, patient allies who are there to just be there present to support them, right? So yes. 
we have to start thinking outside of the box. I always told my students that, how are we thinking? Let's change what critical thinking is looking like. Because in most urban communities, there are abandoned buildings, buildings that we that our communities, our taxpayer money is still paying for, that you can transform into just a center to create so that these people who don't have insurance, don't have money, don't have access, can't get a doctor, but let's bring some people in to support them. And if I bring, we, you know how we are in the black community, we, we, we are little villages. If I get a piece of something, I'm carrying it back to you. <laughs> so that's how, you know what I'm saying? Sure. So that's, let, let, let long COVID be the gossip that we gossip. Cause I like the gossip. Mm, I love uh-huh. some good, I love some good entertainment. I used to want to be an entertainment reporter, but <laughs> cause I love gossip, <laughs> but let that be the thing we gossip about. And sure. also, also researchers, we, like I mentioned before, we have to find a way that is not so stuck on test and testing protocols to a, mm. to, to cut the red tape of people who are included in research, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's already mm-hmm. a, a um, imbalance of white and black people or white and other people of color who want to be researched. There's a long history of reasons why I don't even have to go into that. But so well, we have to start thinking about how we are researching people. And so my thing is, if I, if this hub, Lord bless, please universe, if this hub gets funded by somebody, then my job for two years is not just to get your money and have people come in. My job also is to find ways to survey and to observe symptoms, to report back to your agencies that because you have a hard time getting us to come there. Definitely. A bunch of us can't go to Bethesda, but you can come to my to my hub and you can get <laughs> you can get what you need. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that too. Yeah. Well, Shamir, Fiona, I could talk to you lovely and talented individuals all day long, (laughs) but I also want my listeners to be able to keep up with you once this interview is done. Sure. How can they follow your work? I want all the plugs, all the things (laughs) so that we can keep this conversation going and keep the education flowing. Where can we keep up with you individually and body politic? So Body Politic, uh, you can check out the website at wearebodypolitic.com. We're also on Instagram at wearebodypolitic and Twitter at itsbodypolitic. Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter at fee underscore Lowenstein. Um, and you can also check out more of my work at my personal website, fionalowenstein.com. Yes, I also have a personal website and it's um, Shamir, C-H-I-M-E-R-E, Ladon, L-A-D-A-W-N.com. Um, I am also Shamir Ladon um, on Instagram um, at Shy, C-H-I-L-U-V-S, the number one on Twitter, and just Shamir L. Smith on Facebook. Um, I am transitioning my career from as a teacher um, to a patient consultant. So, so organizations can contact me to, uh, to you know, uh, act as a public speaker for their organizations and also to brainstorm and to start thinking critically about how we can engage with um, Black people. So um, what a way to cur- turn a career change <laughs> or Definitely. transition into a different career. You know, you got 100 percent. Well, thank you, yeah. ladies, so much for the work that you have done with educating the public about long COVID, with creating a support system and education hub for those people who are still living with it. I will drop links to all of your (laughs) 
um, I will drop links to all of your work, to all of your websites in show notes, as well as your Instagram. And that is our episode for this week. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening, don't forget, you're not alone. And all it takes is one person to start a revolution. Use your voice to uplift, to educate, and to love each other. And I will talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. That is our show. I am Alana Webster at Renegade of Fun across social media. This is the Black and Yellow Podcast. It can be found on the socials at Black and Yellow Podcast. Also, if you are on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review. The rates and reviews really help to build the audience for the show and keep it trucking along. Plus, it puts a nice uh nice little shine in my heart to read the positives uh so if you are feeling up to it please rate and review this show would totally appreciate it and i'll be back next week with my co-host katie we're going to be talking about disney's latest drop cruella